In previous episodes, I have argued that the New Testament writings and writers are reliable, but there seems to be an issue remaining in that there are many discrepancies apparent when comparing the New Testament writings among themselves. Regardless of whether they are historical or not, how can they be reliable if it seems the Gospel writers told their stories with contradictory details and in different orders? In this episode, I am going to discuss these issues and more and show that while there seem to be discrepancies between the Gospels, we can show that there are good reasons to conclude that they harmonize. So I hope you'll stick around and find out why we think the Synoptic Gospels are harmonious and can be trusted. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we're talking about the synoptic problem. Uh, Well, not necessarily the synoptic problem as the synoptic problem, uh, but we are going to be discussing mainly discrepancies among the gospel accounts. Okay, I I probably could have uh, labeled this uh, something different, but the synoptic problem is just so much easier to list than... uh, discrepancies among the gospel accounts or something like that. So uh, I'll be talking about what the synoptic problem is in this episode, and I'll be talking mainly about, like I said, discrepancies among the gospels and why we don't think they are contradictory and how they can be harmonized. Um, All of this will be talking, we'll be talking about all this in light of the synoptic problem, so it is is relevant. Um, But you'll see what I'm talking about when we when we get there. Uh, um, as always, I like to start all these with a Bible passage, and uh, we are switching to a new passage in this lecture and the next one. And this is something I've been excited about for, for months now, uh, because uh, this is one of my favorite verses uh, in relation to apologetics. Uh, I mentioned in one of the last couple lectures that there is evidence in the New Testament that from day one, uh, Christians have believed that Jesus was God and rose from the dead. And this passage is uh, one of the uh, best ways to argue for that. So let me go ahead and just tell you what the passage is and read it, and then we'll, then we'll discuss it. So this passage is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. It's a very famous passage, but not too many... Uh, not a lot of people realize just how important this this really is. But uh, yes, this is Paul talking, and I'll go ahead and read it. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Okay, so, um, you know, really great passage. Already, we've talked about this passage uh, before, you know, whenever it talks about how 
Paul mentions that most of the people that, that Jesus appeared to are still alive. That was him challenging and emphasizing uh, to his audience that, hey, there's still people alive right now who saw this. So if you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. Uh, so th- that's an interesting part of it. But you can. But what's really important about this is that you can see that the pretty much almost all of, I mean, there's a lot more to Christian doctrine, obviously, but big uh, portions of major Christianity, uh, major Christian doctrines are all here. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and then he appeared to uh, other people. So uh, there's just there's so much there that's showing what um, what Christians have, throughout the centuries have believed about Jesus. Now, but the the amazing thing about this passage and why I'm bringing it up to you, um, it's actually more relevant to our next lecture when I start talking about Jesus' resurrection. But I don't, uh, to make this episode a little bit more even with that one, I was going to go ahead and talk about all this evidence here, uh, and then you can just remember this when, when you when we start talking about the resurrection in the next couple episodes. But one of the but the amazing thing about this passage is that it it shows evidence uh, concluding or pointing to the fact that Christians just a few years after Jesus died already had a stylized formalized uh, way of talking about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead okay uh, and, and I'm that's what I was going to show you on this next slide so if you are interested in this, I note um, my citations at the bottom there because there's so much more to this than what I'm just going to cover in these uh, in these couple slides. Uh, Gary Habermas, Michael Icona talk about this in their books. Uh, Gary Habermas, and I'm going to show these books at the end of this lecture, I believe. Uh, Gary Habermas has a book called The Historical Jesus. Uh, Michael, Michael Icona has a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, and you can find... Uh, a discussion of this passage, uh, just like I'm talking about it here in those books. Uh, but there's evidence, you know, first of all, notice that Paul says, I pass on to you as most important what I also received, okay? And he's saying he he is just delivering something that he received himself. So we think that he didn't make this up when he was writing in the 50s. He got this from somebody else, okay? Now, more indicators besides him saying that, uh, that this didn't come from him, there's actual internal textual evidence that he didn't make this up. Um, when, when scholars look at this passage and they compare it with all of his other writings, uh, there's many words in this creed, uh, in this passage, that aren't, that aren't words that Paul likes to use. In other words, if when you see him in his other writings, whenever he could say a word for some of these, he would use a different word than what he, what's listed in this passage. And there's a lot more than what I have listed here. These are just some of the, some of the more important ones, I thought. But uh, for our sins, um, the way it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that is found nowhere else in Paul throughout the New Testament. He never uses that uh, formulation. Uh, according to the Scriptures, this is found nowhere else in Paul. Instead, he prefers to say, it is written. So he doesn't say according to the Scriptures. Usually in his letters, uh, he says, it is written. Um, he was, uh, let's see, the twelve. So 
that's a, this is an interesting thing. Uh, he nowhere else in his writings does he say the twelve. Instead, he prefers to say the apostles. So those are just a, a few examples. There's other things in his in First Corinthians 15, like um, he was raised third day. He appeared. Uh, those rare those do show up in other places, but rarely they rarely do and he usually likes to use different ones but that's these three that i have listed are just a few examples okay but but they think that what he's saying in first corinthians 15 3 through 8 is a um, stylized early creed uh, a christian creed so whenever he starts in in the second half of verse 3 uh, going all the way to seven and, and into eight, they think this is a creed. Uh, for one, it's it's uh, it's organized in a stylized parallel form, uh, especially in verses three through four, where it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You know, the first and second lines are longer and end with according to the scriptures. So they think that's possibly a stylized uh, form formulation of a creed. Um, also, First uh, Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, uh, it, it contains Semitic indicators, uh, w- words that are more Semitic, uh, like the name Cephas, for example. This is the Aramaic form of Peter. It means rock. Um, this this passage in First Corinthians 15 also indicates ancient uh, has indications of ancient Hebrew narration, with the triple usage of and that, and two references to the fulfillment of Scripture. So, uh, the, the point here in point five is that um, whenever ancient Hebrew, uh, I've, I've talked before about how the ancient Hebrew culture was big on oral uh, traditions. Well, this is. Those are some of the things that they would put into a creed that was going to be um, uh, to help it be more uh, memorizable. So, uh, like I said, if you are interested in all the reasons why they think that this is a creed and it came from somebody else besides Paul, I, I recommend you check out the historical Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. But why is all this important? The reason why all this is so important is because if you remember in the past lecture or two, I uh, emphasized that higher, even higher critical, negative higher critical scholars believe that um, Paul's writings are authentic, at least a few of them, uh, one of those being 1 Corinthians, right? Um, Yeah, so the majority of critical scholars believe that this letter is a genuine letter, uh, that it was actually written by the Apostle Paul. Because of that, um, and if you remember, I mentioned that uh, you know Paul's letters are written, especially 1 Corinthians, this was written around A.D. Uh, 54. So this is just a little over 20 years after Jesus' death. So that is one of the reasons why it's so significant, because he wrote this letter in 50, around 54 A.D., We've already talked about in past episodes about um, it takes it takes more than it takes like uh, over two generations for legends usually to creep in. But this is just 20 years after Jesus death. And Paul is writing to a church, giving them a creed that was already formalized before he wrote this letter. Now, looking at uh, other writings in Paul, 
we think that we can put all this together to show that um, this creed existed not just a few years after Jesus' death. Uh, and these, and again, now don't take me to be saying that just because that something's true, just because higher critical scholars say it is. I just mention that because it's it just shows how strong the evidence is. Even uh, negative higher critical scholars believe that Corinthians and Galatians and, and letters like that are from legitimately from Paul. He wrote those, and they they're usually dated in the fifties. Now, in Galatians 1, we see, you know, because we're asking ourselves, where did Paul get this creed? In Galatians 1, 18 through 19, Paul mentions, Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. You know, we're asking ourselves, where did he get this creed? Well, uh, I think a liberal dating of Paul Seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus is supposed to be like three to five years after Jesus uh, uh, was said to have been resurrected. So, uh, if really from the what we get in the in the New Testament, we think that there's either one of two times that Paul would have got the stylized version of the of the gospel message. It's either directly from Jesus whenever he met him three to five years after he died. And was uh, risen, or it was uh, about three years after that, like like uh, what Paul mentions here in Galatians. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem. So because he didn't go directly to Jerusalem, if you remember, he didn't go directly to Jerusalem after he met Jesus. He says here in Galatians that there was a three year period in between that and him meeting the rest of the uh, meeting some of the other apostles. So we think that be- from what Paul says, there's only two places he would have got this. When either when he met the apostles, eight or so years, five to eight years after Jesus' death, or directly from Jesus, three to five years after his death. So, uh, as you can see, this is evidence, and this is evidence, even a test. I mean, uh, obviously, a, a negative critical scholar wouldn't be making the argument I'm making. But even negative critical scholars believe that G, that uh, Paul wrote this letter, and Paul is telling us and giving us evidence that they're not just a few years after Jesus died. There were already creeds talking about how uh, already formulated by the Christian Church, talking about how Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to people, and died for our sins. So I just think that is so interesting and and really neat. And and just some more. Um, some more evidence to put in your toolkit when you're talking about um, evidence for why we think that Christians from day one have believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay, now uh, f- for the rest of this time, I'm going to be talking about discrepancies, so uh, so-called discrepancies in the the Gospels. Before I do, I wanted to uh, read some questions for reflection, like we always do. So I think I've got three of them for you. Our first one is: Are you aware of the claim that there are contradictions within within the Synoptic Gospels? Two is: Do you think it is bad that some of the Gospels seem to have different claims about the events? Why or why not? And three, if the apostles or the early church fabricated the stories, do you think they would have left in or created these contradictions? That's a great one. Uh, we should, you know, obviously be answering these throughout, um, but those are some things to be thinking about as we go along. 
So I mentioned, um, I titled this The Synoptic Problem, but there could have been a better label for this lecture, something like Discrepancies Among the Synoptic Gospels or something like that, but that would have been a lot longer. Uh, so anyways, I wanted to tell you really quickly why, uh, what, it, what is the synoptic problem and why am I mentioning that in relation to talking about uh, discrepancies in the Gospels. Uh, so s- s- uh, whether you, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, a synopsis is a general summary of something, right? Uh, and synoptic would be forming a summary, uh, it, it, you know, doing something in a summarizing way. Okay, so that's why uh, it, that's why they call the Gospels a synoptic Gospels, or you know, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, anyways, um, because they were summarizing a. A portion of an of a larger narrative, right? Jesus was alive for thirty three years, uh, but the synoptic gospels provide a summary of what happened whenever he started his ministry, and uh, and obviously you know when he he died and when they claimed he rose from the dead. Okay, now what is the synoptic problem? I've got it listed here as the specific question of the literary relationship of the synoptics whether any of the gospel writers knew one or more of the other gospels and utilized that information as he wrote, right? So uh, throughout the first uh, thousand and a half centuries of the church, to my knowledge, uh, the gospels were mainly thought to be reliable and to supplement each other. Uh, But along with the rise of negative historical criticism came many skeptical views of the Bible and the synoptic gospels. Right. Um, you know, I think I talked about this earlier when we talked about the possibility of miracles. Uh, I said that doubts on the possibility of miracles and doubts about the reliability and inspiration of the Bible rose during the Enlightenment in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And out of all this critical study of the Bible, skepticism towards the supernatural and miracles and new approaches to studying literature came various objections against the harmony and origins of the Synoptic Gospels. So the synoptic problem is mainly uh, the problem concerning the literary relationship between the synoptic gospels, right? Like like I just said, um, you know, if you've ever looked at the differences and similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you'll you'll notice that sometimes they're similar when discussing certain events, and sometimes they're they're different. Uh, sometimes they're a lot different. Uh, you know, some omit whole sections of information that others contain. Now. These concerns, or, or noting this, uh, led higher critical scholars to wonder if all or some of the gospel writers had access to previously written or oral material when composing their gospels and which gospels were written first. Uh, they were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on here. Did when, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospel, did they have some source they were looking at? Did they know of the other gospels? Which one was written first and all that? And uh, I think it's... Uh, Around the 1950s, uh, there was somewhat of a consensus had been reached that Mark's gospel was written first, uh, and then Matthew and Luke's gospels were written later. Using Mark as a source, and then some people think there's another source that uh, that doesn't exist anymore, known as uh, Quell or Q, known as Q source. Okay. I that but that's what the synoptic problem is. Uh, you know, and, and here's here's just, this is what I was talking about just now in this slide. I've got uh, 
if you're listening in, in a podcast, I just have a slide showing Mark at the top, uh, Matthew on, uh, beneath that, Luke beneath that, and Q in there. And it's just an illustration showing that where we think Matthew, where these uh, scholars think Matthew and Luke came from, both Matthew and Luke using Mark and some Q source. Uh, I personally... I like to go with the traditional accounts. Now there are there are there is internal and external evidence um, showing that Matthew that the order and the dating of the Gospels is closer to what the church has always said. The tradition of the church has said the order they were written in and all that. Um, I really enjoy this really short, uh, good book called Why Four Gospels, The Historical Origins of the Gospels, written by David Allen Black. Um, he argues for the traditional uh, dates and, and order, and I, I just think they just make sense to me. You know, um, I, I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I've taught a class on, I teach a class on uh, Introduction to World Religions at South Plains College where I work. And when you study the history of all these world religions, it's so it's it's not funny, but it's it's um, it's striking to me that you'll see that you know after the Enlightenment, all this higher criticism. Higher criticism isn't just something that's aimed at the Bible. There's higher critical scholars in religion um, that have been in at least Western scholars that have studied all world religions. And I, for example, I saw um, some scholars who don't believe that uh, Buddha existed. Uh, I, I've seen, you know, it, it's just interesting to me that just because, um, of course, I, you know, as a Christian, I would say that uh, Buddhism is false, right? That I've got, there's got to be a problem there somewhere. Uh, I personally believe that Buddha existed. Um, I just don't think uh, the world is the way he said it is. Uh, for philosophical and other reasons. But my point is that there's scholars, higher critical scholars, who don't even think that Buddha existed. So I'm sympathetic towards traditions. It's hard for me to think that Buddhism would get started if Buddha didn't exist, right? Uh, there's some people that think that Muhammad didn't even exist. So, but anyways, um, if there, for me, I like to take a, uh, and, and I've mentioned this before, I like to take an uh, a innocent until guilty stance on, on things like this. And there's uh, not only the ancient church fathers wrote about the order in which the Gospels were written, but also there's evidence in the Gospels themselves that, that kind of show why we think they're written in this order. But anyways, I, I don't have time to talk about all this, uh, but uh, in my slide here, I've got Matthew, and I've, I've used this dating before, I think in the last couple lectures. In my slides, I've got uh, Matthew listed as AD 42, Mark at AD 60, Luke at AD 62, and John at AD 96. And this order of the Gospels, to me, makes sense. It's not only the traditional ordering of it, but also, if you remember, the early church was supposed to go to the Jews first, the Gentiles second. You know, Matthew is one of the most Jewish ones, uh, and we'll talk about this later on, that tries to represent Jesus as the Messiah, right? So it would make sense to me that they would have this one written first because they're ministering to the Jews first. Uh, Mark is um, written by Mark, right? Uh, I, I mentioned this before, that he was an associate of the Apostle Peter. We think that Mark, actually, his gospel was him recording a speech by Peter to Roman officials. 
And that would make sense to me because it's one of the shortest ones. You know, if he's giving a quick speech, he can't include everything like Luke does. And we think maybe Luke is later because this is after Luke, uh, the associate of the Apostle Peter, excuse me, Luke, the associate of the Apostle Paul, uh, did all of his investigating. And also the church didn't go to the Gentiles until later on. So it would make sense that they're in this order. Um, but anyways, um, I, 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 I didn't really need to say all that, but I just... This will come up a little bit here and there. But anyways, I was talking about um, all of this. I didn't really need to go into all that detail, but some of this will come up later. And I just wanted to talk about the Synoptic Gospels, um, when we think they were written. Uh, This will help as we go along. But yes, this is the Synoptic problem. The Synoptic problem is the questioning of the literary relationship between the Synoptic Gospels, who wrote what and when and where. But... um, out of this study, this this intense scrutiny of the Synoptic Gospels, it has been emphasized by many scholars that there are differences between the Gospels, okay? So, uh, I w- one of the main reasons why I wanted to cover this issue today is because we just talked about the reliability of the manuscripts, the reliability of the writers, but maybe this the, the seeming contradictions between Gospel accounts might bring some of that into question, okay? So I just kind of wanted to to mention this uh, just to cap it all off, just to just in case someone, uh, whether you're a believer coming across this for the first time, or if you're a believer talking to people about this and they bring up these discrepancies, you'll you'll at least know it exists. So, but there's three there's three main reasons, and and this is a huge study all in itself. But there's three main uh, considerations when thinking about discrepancies between the Gospels. And I wanted to talk about these three. Uh, so it's the ancient practice of paraphrase. There's uh, chronological problems among the synoptics. And there's variations in names and numbers. Okay, So we're going to talk about all three of these, show you some examples from the New Testament, and show you how they, they might look, when you line the passages up, they might look contradictory, but uh, they're not really. Okay? I think one of the most surprising uh, to people has to do with the ancient practice of paraphrasing. Okay, Um, so critics of the Gospels have argued that the Gospels contradict each other because the synoptic authors sometimes seem to quote Jesus differently. But, like I mentioned, this is not surprising given our modern obsession with getting our facts straight and quoting people to the letter. In, In modern times... In these modern days, we're all about, especially, you know, and I, and I teach English composition. I'm so, uh, when I'm teaching my students to write research papers, we're so adamant that if you take someone else's words, um, you you have to use quotations. If you use, if you quote them word for word, you have to use quotations. Uh, but if you just paraphrase them, you don't have to. But you have to provide a source. You know, we're, we're, we're so, uh, in these modern times, we're so, and it makes sense because of copyright laws and, and the Western emphasis on uh, personal property and, and liberty and all that. But uh, in these modern times, you know, if you see quotation marks, that means that you're quoting this person word for word. Well, when you look at your, um, you look at your English Bible, you're going to see quotation marks all throughout it, especially when Jesus is talking. But the thing is, what most uh, lay Christians don't realize is that the ancient uh, 
Hebrew actually didn't even have quotation marks. They didn't have quotation marks back then. Researchers have emphasized that ancient authors did not share the, our modern sentiments. Greek and Hebrew actually didn't even have quotation marks, and ancient authors supposedly did not normally try to capture the exact words of the figures they reported on. Basically, as long as the authors were passing along the general meaning of the words they were recording, then they were thought to be reliable. In the in ancient times, uh, yeah, they, it was mainly everything was done by paraphrasing. Sometimes you might quote someone word for word. Sometimes you might not. Uh, but they didn't have quotation marks, and uh, it was acceptable just to it was acceptable to their standards to just at least capture the spirit of what the person said. Okay. And, and if, you, if you get into the study of the synoptics, you'll see these fancy uh, words here. Scholars distinguish between Jesus' actual words and Jesus' actual voice. So uh, if you've ever heard of ipsissima verba or ipsissima vox, this is a distinction that scholars make when, when looking at the synoptics because they know the ancient um, practice of paraphrase. And, you know, just to give you an example, I think we actually already looked at examples before. If you remember when we were talking about Jesus' self-understanding, in, in one gospel, Jesus would be quoted, or, you know, not quoted, right? But he would be paraphrased as saying, uh, who, do, who do they say that I am? And in the other gospel, he says, who do they say that the Son of Man is? According to ancient standards, that both of those are fine. Uh, probably Jesus... Uh, word for word said the son of man but in the other in the other account um jesus says uh, you know jesus is reporting to say who do they say that i am uh, and that's and that's some of the evidence telling us that he called himself the son of man uh, but here, here's another example so in mark chapter 1 verse 11 it says and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So a big difference here is in Mark 1, it says, You are my beloved Son. In Matthew 3, it says, This is my beloved Son. Uh, uh, they, scholars believe, and I'm about to show you a, a slide showing that um, all the different big themes of each gospel, each synoptic gospel. Scholars believe that sometimes uh, to explain why one synoptic author wrote differently from the other is because of their audience. And this is definitely something that this that's definitely going along with a concept that I teach in my composition class all the time. Knowing your audience is going to determine what you're going to say in your speech or what you're going to say in your essay. And so, for example, here in, in Mark 1 and Matthew 3, some scholars have argued that maybe Mark, in giving his speech to some Roman officials, wanted them to realize that everybody in the crowd could hear God. It wasn't just, um, it wasn't just all in Jesus' head. So instead of it being like in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with, with whom I'm well pleased, uh, you know, they think that maybe that's that explains it. In Mark 1, he's saying, you are my beloved son. Uh, a voice came from heaven. So anyways, but but you can see in both of these cases, it's basically saying the same thing. And that's OK, according to ancient standards. Let's look at another example in Luke 13. Uh, 
Luke chapter 13, verse 19, it says, It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. In Matthew 13, verse 31, it says, He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Uh, so in the first one, we've got in Luke, we've got a man sowing a mustard seed in his garden. In, Luke, in Matthew 13, it says that a, uh, a man took and sowed a mustard seed in his field. This is, this is a, one of my favorites as far as this point. So as, as I've said before, uh, Matthew is a very Jewish um, gospel that was meant to be for the Jewish people, and it's trying to present Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, scholars believe that, to explain this discrepancy, uh, so apparently the Jewish purity laws forbade, forbade people, forbode people to, uh, the Jewish people to plant mustard seeds in, in, in their garden. But the Gentile people did uh, plant mustard seeds in their garden. So, uh, so Matthew definitely wouldn't be quoting Jesus as saying that uh, someone, you know, the kingdom of God is like someone planting a mustard seed in their garden. But when Luke is, is uh, preaching and talking to Gentiles, that uh, planting a mustard seed in your garden is going to make more sense to them and be more relatable. So this is a, just another example of where they think that the audience determines them saying it in different ways. Um, I think I've got one more example for us, and then I'll, I'll move on to the next point. So here's another example of paraphrasing. In Luke chapter 22, verse 70, it says, They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. In Matthew 27, verses 63 through 64, it says, but Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. So, you know, in the first one in Luke 22, it says, Are you then the Son of God? Uh, Jesus says, You say that I am. In Matthew 27, they say, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, replied Jesus. And, you know, you can see again here, Note that Matthew mentions that uh, the high priest asked if he was specifically the Messiah. Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience, that he's trying to present Jesus as the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were so familiar with. So, of course, he mentions that. In Luke, um, Luke left that out. He kept in the Son of God. But his audience might have not been as uh, as as concerned with whether Jesus was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament because a Gentile audience isn't going to be as uh, familiar with the Old Testament as the Jewish people were. So you see here in all three of these examples, these verses basically say the same thing. They just might have been changed a little bit because of who their audience was. But the spirit of each, you know, the, the meaning is still in both of them. It's just not exact. Okay, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's how the ancient peoples uh, did things. If you're interested in, um, in differences between the synoptics, just know that there is a lot of literature on this. One book I recommend is by Stephen Cox and Kendall Easley. Uh, it's called Harmony of the Gospels. 
And uh, what they do is they they show the they'll list the gospels um, in they'll line them all up so that you can see parallel passages right next to each other. And there's and and what I think is really neat about this specific book is that um, it it'll they'll they also comment on why they think some of them are different. So if you're interested in that, there's all sorts of harmony of the Gospels available. A lot of people have tried to harmonize them and see if they can line up the stories and everything. And and there's a lot of these, but I, I recommend this harmony of the Gospels by Cox and Easley. So that's one uh, paraphrasing. Just know that. Uh, ancient people's paraphrase. They didn't have quotes. So, you know, <laughs> the modern reader is going to look at one gospel and it's going to be in quotes and think that if they if this quote doesn't match up directly with this quote, then there's a problem. But for one, they put in those quotations just to show you that this is, you know, the author was saying this is the words of someone else. But there weren't quotes back then. So. So there's nothing wrong with that. Another issue that you might have already noticed if you're a believer is that the Gospels sometimes have certain events out of order when you look at them together. For example, uh, Luke tells of John the Baptist's imprisonment at the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Um, I think it's in Luke 3. But Mark's gospel mentions John the Baptist's imprisonment in the middle of Jesus' Galilean ministry around Mark 6. So I'm not saying that the gospels tell stories, a specific story in different order. What a lot of what and sometimes between the gospels it has major events happening in different orders like that. So not the not the events themselves, what happened in the event, but the events will be presented in different orders. Um, but it's been emphasized for centuries by Bible scholars that the four Gospels did not only have different audiences, but they also uh, emphasized different aspects of Jesus' ministry. I'm going to come back to this slide, but I, I wanted to say really quickly, if you didn't already know, each Gospel actually presents Jesus in a different way, and it makes sense after, and I mentioned this a, a second ago when we were looking at the, the order and the dates of the Gospels, each gospel author was presenting Jesus in a different way. Uh, Matthew presents Jesus as the promised Messiah and the coming king. Mark, uh, of course, you know, Mark maybe just wrote down and, and, and possibly edited a little bit uh, Peter's speech, but Peter's speech was a, a uh, was to, was supposedly to a Roman official. So it makes sense to me that uh Peter would present Jesus as the suffering servant, and that's kind of a theme throughout the, the book of Mark. In the book of Luke, Jesus is mainly presented as the Son of God and the Son of David. And in, in John, you know, Jesus is uh, presented as the, uh, the Son of God, and his, his divinity is emphasized. But we think that these major themes of the Gospels uh, kind of provide a clue as to why certain events are, are given in different orders, and, and scholars believe that they're given in different orders because of the theme of each one. One thing that's important to know is that there are different Greek words that get translated into the English chronological transition words, now and then. You know, so if you see in your Bible, it'll say, now this happened, or then this happened. 
But the thing with that is that in the Greek, sometimes these Greek words can simply just mean and. So it's not like the the um, gospel authors are saying this happened and then this happened right after that happened. No, they're just kind of presenting events, not necessarily saying in which chronological order they happen. And we think that a lot of times in the Gospels, it's, it's, they're presented in thematic order, not necessarily chronological order. I think Luke's Gospel is supposed to be uh, mainly in chronological order. But uh, like I said, that is a whole study in itself. So it's something that you have to look at. But yeah, um, let me show you some examples of this. And I, I've already mentioned this one in Luke 3. Uh, Luke tells of John the Baptist's imprisonment at the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. In Mark 6, Mark's gospel mentions it in the middle of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Another example is in Luke 5. Uh, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, describes the call of Peter, John, and James later in the narrative and also joins it with the story of the miraculous catch of fish. In Mark's gospel, it places the call early on in Mark 1. 16 through 20 uh, but they think this is different from mark's gospel uh, because luke wanted to show that the disciples didn't just pick up and leave to follow jesus for no reason so maybe whenever peter was giving his speech he's just matter of factly saying these things but uh but you know since uh luke is writing to a gentile audience uh he wanted to make sure that they realized that the, these uh, disciples didn't just pick up everything they did and, and follow Jesus for no reason. They there was there was a good reason why they were following him. So that that's maybe a, a reason why they're like that. But the the biggest consideration is to know that oftentimes the uh, gospel writers were presenting events in thematic order, not necessarily chronological order, okay? And the last major topic I wanted to talk about in this lecture is sometimes there's variations in names in, within stories, and there's variations within numbers of people or, or other things in stories, okay? And your critics are going to want to say, oh, look, they're contradicting each other, so they're wrong. Uh, but I just wanted to show you these because in each case, you'll see that just because one says something different from the other, it doesn't entail a necessary contradiction. Okay, if you just look at it and think a little bit longer, take an innocent until guilt uh, proven guilty approach, you'll see that there's. If you think about it, they're really not contradicting each other. Okay, I can give you. Um, uh, let's see, I was going to give like four examples. So one example is in Mark 1, verse 39. It says, He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. In Luke 4, verse 44, it says, And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, so your hardcore critic here might want to say, Oh, look, there's a discrepancy. Mark is saying that he went into Galilee, uh, and, and Luke is saying that he was in, in Judea. So there's a contradiction here. Um, it's, it's actually believed that Jesus probably just went to Galilee. Uh, but here, but here's the thing. Luke was simply mentioning that took place in Judea, which includes Galilee, right? Uh, so it's possible that this detail was more important to Peter than it was to the Gentile Luke, who's, who's writing to a Gentile audience. 
right? We think that maybe Peter, it was important to, to, for, to Peter to have the, the, this specific detail in there while uh, Luke is just matter-of-factly stating it took place in, in Judea. You know, if you check a map, you'll see that that's not a contradiction. One is just more detailed than the other. And, and, and the rest of these examples are similar to that. Uh, so uh, this next one is an example using Mark 10, verse 46, and Matthew 20, verse 30. In Mark 10, verse 46, it says, They came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. In Matthew 20, verse 30, it says, There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So in, in Mark 10, it's saying that a, a blind beggar uh, was there, just one. In Matthew 20, it's saying that there were two blind men. Now, while this might look contradictory on the surface, and this is really, this is honestly is driving home a point that we made in an earlier lecture. Mark is in Mark. We have an emphasis on Bartimaeus. It was specifically said his name and who he was. In Matthew, we see there's more than one, but the names of them aren't mentioned. But does that you know? Note here that neither one of these gospel authors said there was only one blind person, or there were there were two, and uh, you know. That's the main thing is that Mark doesn't say there was only one. Um, and Matthew 20 doesn't mention what their names were. So uh, Mark, Peter is focusing in on this one person. Everything that Peter says in Mark 10, 46 can be true, even if there's two blind men sitting there, right? He is emphasizing this one person. And this is exactly what you would expect if you have multiple independent eyewitness sources one person noticed this one thing more than the other person did okay so peter and matthew are going to tell things differently from the way they saw it and there's nothing wrong with that but the biggest but the big thing to remember is that um is that mark did not say there was only one person there he, he just mentioned one person uh, a similar thing is is found in mark 5 and matthew 8 so Mark 5 verse 2 says, As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. In Matthew 8 verse 28, it says, When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Again, Mark just mentions one person. Matthew mentions two. But Mark didn't say there was only uh, one person. Uh, in Mark 16 Verse 5, it says, When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. In Luke 24, verse 4, it says, While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. And again, Mark could be emphasizing this one person, while Luke could be mentioning that there were two. But Mark doesn't say there was only one. It seems like Peter focuses in on one thing. Uh, it seems like in all these stories, he's focusing on this one individual and kind of ignoring other people uh, or just, re just you know, remembering these specific details about this one person that he was looking at. Uh, but I, I wanted to show you this because 
While these might look contradictory on the surface, like I've said, they're they're not showing a necessary contradiction. You just if you're taking a innocent uh, innocent until proven guilty approach and being uh, more charitable, you can see that these aren't contradicting each other. Uh, in fact, something that I'm going to go into here in a couple lectures, uh, we think there's a word for what what's happening here, and and this is all evidence, not that the the gospel writers were getting the stories wrong. It's all evidence pointing to the the fact that they were eyewitness, uh, they were eyewitnesses to these events. Uh, we call this an undesigned coincidence. Now, with those ones that I've just showed you, it's it's more uh, just. You know, it's not really one story doesn't really give insight into the next. Now, that one story where it's giving uh, Bartimaeus's name and, and things like that, that is kind of giving insight into the other one, even though he's only mentioning one person, the other one mentions two. But there's other passages in the New Testament where one passage will give more information to another, and one passage will answer a question that you had from the other one. And if you just had one passage in isolation, you would, you would have been uh, puzzled, okay? We call this an undesigned coincidence, and this has been known uh, by Bible scholars for centuries. Um, they've been they've been writing about this since the 1700s, and 1800s. Take for example Matthew 26 verses 67 through 68 and Luke 22 63 through 60 through 65. Matthew 26 and 67 says, "Then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who was it that hit you?'" Now, imagine that you're reading uh, Matthew 26 in isolation, and you didn't have anything else, and you're, you're reading the story about the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish officials slapping Jesus in the face and then asking him, prophesy to us and tell us who hit you. You'd probably be thinking, that's a strange thing to say to someone that you just slapped in the face. Of course, like, why would he need to prophesy? Why would God need to tell him who slapped him in the face? He just got slapped in the face. You can't do that from a distance, right? Now, in Luke 22, though, you read uh, Luke 22, verse 63 says, The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. If all we had was Matthew 26, we wouldn't realize exactly what's going on in the story. Luke 22, uh, this different account, uh, this different account of the same event gives us more information as to why the things were happening in Matthew the way they were. Jesus was blindfolded, so that's why they were telling him to prophesy who it was that was slapping him in the face. He wouldn't have seen it because he had a blindfold on. And these are just these are what we call undesigned coincidences. If you remember, I've mentioned uh, J. Warner Wallace before. He wrote a book called A Cold Case Christianity. He was a um, cold case detective in Los Angeles for years, and he's and he. If you read his story, it's it's really interesting because he didn't believe in Christianity, but all of the principles he was taught as a cold case detective pointed to. Um, everything that he saw in the New Testament being a true eyewitness accounts from multiple independent sources. So in cases like these and cases like we just saw with the different names and numbers, uh, you might, some people taking the guilty until proven innocent approach are going to be saying, oh, see, there you go. It's all, uh, it's all contradictory. But if you notice, if you just give it a chance, 
you look into it a little bit deeper, you take that uh, innocent until proven guilty approach, you'll see that there's an explanation for all of these. And there's things that we wouldn't even known about if we hadn't have uh, considered it further and just and just wrote these off as being uh, incorrect. So that's what I wanted. That's what I was talking about today. Uh, these issues that have arisen through this uh, this high scrutiny of the Gospels because of the synoptic problem. If you are interested in discrepancies in the in the in Bible passage altogether, especially in the in the Gospels, I recommend these two books: the Big Book of Bible Difficulties by Norm Geisler and Thomas Howe, and the uh, the Big Book of Bible Difficulties is amazing. It. Uh, Dr. Geisler, the late Dr. Geisler and, and, and Dr. Thomas Howe, I don't even know, I mean, I don't know how they did all the research for this, but just about any problem passage in the Bible, they have an entry for it, and they explain how it's not contradictory, they explain why it says what it does. That is an amazing book if you haven't already seen it. If you're specifically interested in issues with the gospel accounts themselves, I recommend the histor- Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Craig Blomberg. Um, but yeah, that's that's our lecture for today. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, differences in names and numbers or differences in what it says, because uh, between two quoted passages, I just wanted y'all to know that um, these can harmonize and they don't seem to be problematic the more you look into it. Here's our questions for reflection again. So hopefully you got the answers to these. Uh, as always, you know, if you want to put answers to these or discuss other things in the comment section, please do. Uh, or send me an email if you're listening. Uh, uh, go to my website, click on the links in the, uh, in the podcast uh, description. And, uh, and let me know what you think about these questions for reflection or any other comments. So here's the questions for reflection again. Are you aware of the claim that there are contradictions within the Synoptic Gospels? Two, do you think it is bad that some of the Gospels seem to have different claims about the events? Why or why not? And three, if the Apostles or the early church fabricated the stories, do you think they would have left in or created these supposed contradictions? Um, I've got a... Uh, I think this is one of our last times we'll 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 spend on our Charles Colson quote. Charles Colson says, "The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything else we believe. By his resurrection, Jesus proved he is who he says he is. Be confident in this truth. Stand on the holy word of God. Don't sell the world a false bill of goods. Preach the word. Defend the faith. Live the faith." Um, just wanted to. Uh, again, as I do at the end of all these, I wanted to uh, give a quick shout out to Southern Evangelical Seminary. It's uh, where I was educated with a PhD in philosophy of religion. Uh, if you are interested in these uh, apologetic topics and want to dive deeper, whether it's theology, philosophy, apologetics, Southern Evangelical Seminary is a great place. They have in-person classes, uh, online classes, and you can get things all the way from just a certificate in biblical languages or certificate in apologetics to an undergraduate degree, uh, to a master degree in apologetics or philosophy, MDivs with emphasis on apologetics or other, you know, just regular things, other pastoral things, uh, doctor of ministry, PhD, you name it, they've got it. I highly recommend uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and I also recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy, uh, which is a classical Christian school in Lubbock, Texas, uh, this is uh, Lubbock, Texas, where I live. My kids go there. It's a great classical uh, Christian school. Uh, 
they have uh, grades all the way from pre-K to 12th grade, and uh, it's a great school that teaches uh, teaches everything from a classical Christian perspective, and I think it's a great alternative uh, to public education here in the Lubbock area. So if you go to kingdomprep.org, you can get more information, or you can uh, drop by, uh, or just Google it and drop by and, and, and give them a call or or give them a visit. They're great people, and I highly re- recommend it. Um, I'm looking forward to the next lecture. We're going to be talking about three different arguments for Jesus' resurrection. Just giving a quick survey before we present a, uh, before I spend an entire lecture presenting one argument for Jesus' resurrection. So I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.